Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 16. I've already heard the text read. It's a larger chunk than usual, but I could not find a satisfactory way to break it up in a way that I thought you know, would be something other than preaching half a thought or half a sermon. And so, unfortunately, the expository task involves making such decisions, and so I may beg the indulgence of a few extra minutes, but nothing extreme today. The main point is clear enough. Having just heard the text, the main point is clear enough. Paul's superiority to the impostors at Corinth is displayed primarily in his weakness, which both demonstrates and completes God's power. Pretty clear. Recall that the fool's speech has started in chapter 11, verse 1, where he is going to engage in a little bit of folly. He is going to answer a fool according to their folly in light of texts um, uh, like uh, pr- like Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. He's going to take that second option and answer folly according to folly so that they are not wise in their own sight. He said, I betrothed you to one one bridegroom, but I have a fear that you're going that your thoughts are going to be led astray from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Paul says, I'm not in the least inferior to any of these super apostles. And then he goes on to talk about um, that he is not going to accept money to preach the gospel, that he is preaching a priceless gospel free of charge. And there's something socially polarizing about him not taking their support, but it's worth it because the preaching the gospel free of charge is a badge of authenticity. And it says that we are not on the same team with these other apostles. We are not out for the same purposes. And in fact, those are those particular people are false prophets, false apostles, and they are disguised as ministers and servants of righteousness when in fact they are not. And that's not surprising because their master, Satan, parades about, disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's not surprising that those who serve him would do the same thing and their end will correspond to their deeds. That is essentially the summary of Uh, where we're at in the chapter thus far, which leads to verse 16. And what you're going to see is that he pauses again to clarify that he is engaging in foolishness and recapitulates a little bit the first uh, verse of the chapter where he says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. He stops to clarify that this is still what he's doing. And we're going to see that it pains Paul to even talk about this way, and he's going to keep having to make caveats because he feels so ridiculous. Um, engaging in this kind of foolish banter. But he says, I repeat, lest no one think me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I may, I too, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but of the fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. So he says, listen, I just want to be clear. I'm not a fool. But even if you're going to accept me as that, okay, let's play that game for a second. Just accept it because that will allow me to boast like these fools are doing there in Corinth. Um, What I have already said and what I'm about to say is not how the Lord would normally have me talk. And again, we're going to see that. He makes that very clear a couple of times. Not just have, just have, especially Paul talk as an apostle of Christ, but I'm answering these fools according to their folly. Okay, I'm answering them according to their folly. And so in this game of foolishness where people have this confident, this self-confident, boastful pride, I'm going to play the game as a fool and do so as well. And the question is, is are the Corinthians going to bear with his foolishness? Of course they are. Why? And we get the biting sarcasm in verses 19 and 20. They are, the Corinthians are professionals at bearing with foolishness. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, which is the idea of lifting themselves up 
over you or strikes you in the face, which may have actually referred to an actual incident that happened in Corinth and not just like a, a, an insult. It could have been that because of how it's, it comes in this list, it could be referring to something that actually happened there. But regardless, he says, y'all are so wise, of course you'll bear with me. Uh, of course you're, you'll bear with foolish people like me who are just not quite on your level. Okay, that's what he's saying. You're so strong. You're so strong. In fact, you bear with enslavement and people devouring you. Whoa, that is really strong. Y'all are so wise that you're able to get taken advantage of and abused. I tell you what, that really is tremendous. That really is tremendous. You're wise. You're so wise that you get taken advantage of and abused by these so-called servants of Christ. And then he twists the dagger a little bit more. Verse 21, the first part of it. To my shame, I must say that we were too weak for that. <laughs> we're too weak to do what these people do. Whew. Boy, I mean, they really are, I have to say, the height of wisdom and strength. We just don't have it in ourselves like they do to abuse you and take advantage of you. Maybe when we, when we become more mature and we grow... You know, in our in the Lord, like they maybe then won't be strong enough to do that. But right now, I'll tell you what, we're not strong enough for that. Biting sarcasm because Paul is serious about what's going on here. He is deadly serious. That's his kind of second introduction or apologetic. We're actually going to see he does a third one. You probably heard it when we read the text. So he's entering into the foolishness, and here's where he really shifts into playing the game. But the way he plays the game is going to have a very important, ironic twist. He is going to play hardball, listen to this, in weakness. He's going to play some hardball here in weakness. We're going to see that it's, again, almost impossible for Paul to even carry the stream of thought because it seems so crazy, so prideful, so foolish, so ungodly. He says... But whatever anyone else dares to boast or is so bold to boast of, I'm speaking a fool. I'm speaking as a fool. He kind of interrupts his thought. He's like, oh my goodness, what am I saying? This sounds, this is so embarrassing. This is so remedial. This is so immature. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking of fool. I also dare to boast of that. Of that. And this may tip us off here that what's going on is He's hearing the Corinthians boast about certain things, the of that, those things. And he's saying, I'm going to boast of those things as well. And if that's the case, which is very likely it is, then what follows is going to be a bit of a mirror of what uh, the Corinthians are boasting of. So the, the, the Corinthians are bold, the super, not the Corinthians, but the super apostles there are bold enough. They're daring to boast about these things that they shouldn't be um, and he says, I'm going to boast of that as well, presumably those things. And we're going to see that it comes under three categories, three categories. The first is national heritage. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Verse 22. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. And you probably noticed that these three designations roughly pick out the exact same thing, right? If we did a little pop quiz and I said, what's the difference between an Israelite, a Hebrew, and a descendant of Abraham? People are like, uh, I'm not sure. It's because largely they refer to the same people, but different, uh, but different angles on it. And it's, it's done here for rhetorical effect. Are you part of this holy race, a Hebrew? Are they part of the holy race? Yes. Okay, so am I. Are they part of the covenant people of God? Yes, they are. Are they heirs to the promises of the patriarchs? Yes, they are. Well, so am I. The cumulative force here is to say these people are full-blooded, bona fide, purebred Jews. And Paul says, and so am I. Circumcised on the eighth day, baby. Tribe of Benjamin. I'm as pure as it gets. And by the way, this, this may give us a window into some of the distortion and the teaching that's going on at Corinth, right? Because these are clearly, the super apostles here uh, are clearly Jewish. And if you put together the fact that they are Jewish with some of the things Paul says earlier in the letter, contrasting 
the, the, the letter written on the heart versus the letters written on tablets of stone. It may be that there's a some kind of uh, a gr- these group of people are, are, are suggesting that people should obey the Mosaic law, perhaps be circumcised. Maybe it's similar to the controversy in the Galatian churches, but certainly it has something to do with the fact that they're Jewish and there's a Jewish distortion of the gospel going on here. And, and it seems that we're tipped off to that by the first element of comparison. Paul says, so am I. I am as Jewish as it gets. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing he moves to is being a servant of Christ. Being a servant of Christ. And again, he can't complete this sentence with talking about how ridiculous he feels. What there's going to, there's going to be an appeal to their ministry resume, to put it crudely. An appeal to resume and ministry accolades. And what he says is, he is a superior servant. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. It doesn't get more candid than that. Now imagine I stepped up as a pastor and said something like that. Do you have a pastor down? Y'all know the pastor down the road? I'm a better pastor than he is. Okay. Pretty, that's a pretty bold, that would be a pretty bold thing to say, right? That would, and he again, he can't even hardly get this out. Look at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He's like, what am I is even saying? He's not saying that it's not true, though. He's saying, I'm talking about the truth in a way that is boastful and foolish and crazy. And that's important as we go through the text. Because all the things that he says here, the afflictions and then the visions of revelation, none of it's not true. It's just that boasting in it is the problem. That's the dynamic that we're going to feel throughout the passage. He says, I am a better one. What does he marshal forward to support that claim? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Here's the peculiar thing about Paul's resume here. It is a really strong resume of suffering and weakness. It's a super strong resume for being a servant of Christ in this comparison with the super apostles. Super strong resume of suffering and Weakness. And this is the very last thing we would expect here. This is where Paul can flex his muscles. I spoke at the Areopagus. Did you? Did you go to the climax of intellectual culture and the ultimate uh, philosophical roundtable and give a lecture? No, you did not. I got the approval of the inner three. Galatians chapter 2. James, Peter, and John. They gave me an endorsement. I've raised the dead. Acts chapter 20. And poor Eutychus who fell out the window. I've raised the dead. None of that shows up here. None of the stuff that's like, whoa, shows up. Until, it's it's very clever how this happens. Until you get down to chapter 12. But then he distances himself rhetorically from going to paradise by saying, I know some guy who did that. We'll talk about that in just a second. But none of the impressive stuff shows up. None of the impressive stuff shows up. And so in this list, you kind of have to cover it all at once. And the reason I had 2 Corinthians 6 read is because that kind of crescendo that you see in 2 Corinthians 6 builds for rhetorical effect similar to here. The only one I'll pause to to talk about for just a second here is the first one he mentions. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. So he's about to go on this big run, and I'm just going to read it out for us. But let me just say the 40 lashes was the max one could get under the Jewish law. And I want you to listen to how one historian said how brutal this was. He said the minister of the synagogue was to stand on a raised stone and inflicting blows with all his might using a redoubled calf strap to which two other straps were attached. Thirteen blows were delivered to the chest and twenty-six to the back. The severity of this beating can be inferred from the provisions made in the event the offender defecated, urinated, or even died as a result of their blows. And Paul says, five times. I've done that five times. That's how he starts off. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
A night and a day I was adrift at sea, which is different than being shipwrecked. The idea there is he's floating in the open ocean on some piece of flotsam. He's hanging on to something in the open ocean, floating around. Helpless, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. It's an absurd amount of things to endure on behalf of Christ. It's a very strong resume, in other words, of suffering and weakness. And to add to that, you have verse 28. After all that, he says, well, and apart from those things, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In the background of getting worn out and beaten and shipwrecked, and all the rest of it, I have concern for these churches. Does anyone there in Corinth, the super apostles, how many churches, are they concerned for their churches? Do they have a pastoral heart towards their churches? Do they have constant anxiety for all the churches? Verse 29 gives us a peek. What does that look like? It's fleshed out. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not Indignant. This is the this is the pastor's heart. This is the compassionate Paul. He hurts when his people hurts. He's indignant when people are led astray, made to fall. He has a righteous anger. He bears the burdens of his people because he cares. There's the pressure on him, the anxieties of all the churches. That's enough, trust me, to have anxiety and pressure for one church. Take it from me. I can't imagine feeling the responsibility of in the background of just trying to get through run-of-the-mill and sometimes, well, in many cases, much more than run-of-the-mill suffering, trying to still worry about all that. And said, so, nevertheless, he does. And so in verse 30, he kind of clarifies what he's been doing, lest we're left scratching our heads. Well, that wasn't exactly what I was expecting. I didn't hear the resurrection claim. I didn't hear the Areopagus story. Like, what, what's going on here? He says, if I must boast. So even if I'm going to become a fool, play the game and boast. I'm going to do it in a different way. If I will boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Even when pretending to be a fool for the sake of argument... He's going to boast, but he's going to boast in things that show his weakness. And he appeals to God's knowledge here. He appealed to the the, the truth of Christ that was in him in the last passage. God knows that that this is truly, these are truly my boasts. He knows these things happened. I'm not lying. For example, we don't have the record of those three shipwrecks. Okay, Shipwreck Shipwreck in Acts happened after this, chronologically. Okay? Lord Jesus knows I didn't just make up this stuff. More importantly, he knows that this is where my true boast's at. This is where my true boast is at. That's why I didn't include some of those very impressive things I otherwise could have included on my apostolic servant of Christ resume. Now, verse 32 seems a bit out of place, doesn't it? It seems to end oddly. At Damascus... The governor under king, and in the Greek, it's hereta. Looks like it's aratos in English. I don't, I don't even know what you're, how you're supposed to say that in English. Aretas, but in Greek, it's hereta, the rough breathing mark before that A. Hereta. King hereta was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. You don't even have to be a particular Bible scholar to realize it seems a little bit out of place after this run. Seems like, doesn't it sound like the chapter should have ended there with the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying? It's like, that would have been a great end. Instead, there's just like one, and then here's this one autobiographical, you know, account here. But it may be that Paul's placed that here as a particularly weak-looking example, perhaps even one that runs the risk of looking like a fleeing coward, okay? As As kind of a cap. To this list. I mean, hey, let's just be honest. This is not exactly the posture of, of Daniel praying with his window open. 
Where is Paul's account of him standing up to the forces of Damascus, boldly proclaiming that to live is Christ and die is gain, and then getting beaten again? Where, why didn't he say that? He gave an account of, of running. I didn't stand. I, I got let down in a wall, basically. They put me in a basket, and there was a hole in the wall, and I ran. Paul's being let down just on a grammatical and conceptual level in the text contrasts with his being caught up in just a second. There's a contrast here. Because he's not a fleeing coward. There's, there's something more. There's something more here. There's something more at stake. He says, I must keep on boasting. He's commented on the first two elements, which again are presumably an, a mirror of what the, uh, the super apostles there at Corinth are boasting of. National heritage. Uh, servant of Christ, ministry, resume. And then the third thing that we're going to see here, the final element, is visions and revelations. He says, I must go on boasting. Again, clarifying again, he's engaged in this same boasting and foolishness. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now let me just pause. This is not the main point of the passage, and I'm not willing to get distracted by it, but I'm going to throw this out there and leave it for you to consider. This is an incredible statement. There's nothing to be gained by it, or there's nothing helpful or nothing prop profitable. Why is that? Why is that an incredible statement? I'll tell you why. Because if I was arguing with someone, and we were talking about justifications for holding the view that I was bringing forward, and I pulled out of my reasons, I've been to heaven and God told me so, I would think that that counts as a relevant and meaningful and helpful piece of information establishing my view. But he apparently does not. He is sitting here saying, what's helpful in terms of establishing the nature of my apostolic superiority and authority? I'm going to tell you about visions and revelations that I've had, but it's not going to be particularly helpful. I'm going to boast about it, but it's not going to be particularly helpful. And why is that? Well, presumably because those people, the people in Corinth, again, are saying the same kind of things. Well, you, don't want to hear, you want to hear about my vision? You want to hear about the revelation I got? So what do you do? Apparently, there is much more. He says, that's not going to be helpful because I'm going to tell you, here's my vision. They're going to say, here's my vision, and now here we are. He's already pointed to what really is helpful. A pure heart, superiority and knowledge, preaching the gospel for free, boasting in weakness. And I'll just throw this out there. What implications does this have for the old God spoke to me and, and, and told me line? I heard the voice of God telling me that you should do this. In fact, I had a conversation with a young man the other day. He was at college right now and he, had a, he has a small group leader who said, uh, God told me that you need to change your major. And he called me and said, what should I think about that? And the first thing I said was, I would ask him, why didn't God tell, tell you that? <laughs> right? Um, apparently, apparently appealing to, well, I had a revelation of God when someone else can say the exact same thing. Not particularly useful in terms of authenticating your message. Just leave that there. That's not the main point. But it's an astonishing little claim in context. It's an astonishing little claim. But we must, we must move on. He is going to boast of a man who is raptured, harpagenta, into third heaven paradise. The same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4 to say that we will all be caught up to meet God in the air. That word harpagenta translated into Latin. The Latinization of that is where you get the word rapture. It's where we get the word rapture. And he says essentially the same thing twice. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He can't describe the precise nature of it. Um, or he's not telling us the precise nature of it. There's two different interpretations there. Maybe he was just so enraptured by what's happening, wasn't going on, or maybe because he's distancing himself from this man. Um, he's just not telling whether it was in the body or out of the body. But the idea of the third heaven, remember, he's just he's speaking in the common language of ancient 
um, cosmology. You had heavens where the clouds and the birds fly. You had heavens where the stars and the moon and all the rest are. And then you had God enthroned above the heavens where the grave and Sheol was below the earth, kind of that cosmology. And paradise is synonymous with that. It's where the thief on the cross was uh, was told that he would be Abraham's bosoms. Another word for this heaven, this intermediate state, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. But it's still short of final consummation. It's not everyone has a resurrection body and the renewal of all things. It still is an intermediate state. It is sinless. It's to be in the presence of God. It's to be, in some sense, the dwelling place of God. And Paul says, I was caught up to this place. And so, no, no excuse me. Critically, that's not what he says. That's my next point. Uh, he, he distances himself rhetorically from this experience. You might think he's talking literally about someone else, but in verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting. In verse 7, he says, so to keep me from being conceited, he's not talking about someone else in the middle there. He's talking about himself. What he is doing is using the rhetorical device to distance himself from the only thing here that is probably really and truly astonishing. Probably like could be the most legitimate boast possible, and he's going to acknowledge that in one second. He's going to say, if I wanted to boast in this, I wouldn't be lying. This is truly remarkable. And so he distances himself from this because he's going to come back to that personal language when he goes back to weakness. He's trying to keep it on weakness. He's trying to boast in weakness. Okay. And so what is it? He's again, he's, he's countering these super apostles. He's saying, I know a man who got caught up to, to third heaven, to paradise. What was the nature of this incredible revelation? What is it? So Paul is in the context here, vying for, for authority, trying to demonstrate what is it that this revelation that he received to validate his superiority and keeping with the ironically weak nature of how he presents it, it's a revelation that can't be revealed. That's what he says. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Yesterday, I told him, I asked my son, I said, son, sometimes I said, uh, I said, when uh, no one is watching me and I'm not detected by any devices, I'm in, I disappear. I did. I said, when no one's around, no one can see me and there's no cameras watching, I can disappear. And he smiled and said, I tell people that too, Dad. <laughs> okay. Um, I said, you don't believe me? And he said, no. This has that kind of feel. I went to heaven. I got this incredible revelation. You want to know what it was? No, oh, I can't tell you. But I had it. I, I, it was given to me, but no one can know it. That's the thing. It was, in fact, that's what it was. It was so amazing that you can't know. That's how amazing it was. And, and Paul knows that it has this little, it, it, it's a boast that doesn't feel like one, and he knows it. Look at verse 5 and 6. He knows this. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though, and here's the critical part, though, if I should wish to boast about this experience, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. He's not saying this, isn't, this, this didn't happen. He's saying, I'm not going to place my boast here. So if here's the spectrum of true things in life. Okay, The boast section for him is, the, is, is over here where he's focusing on weakness. Okay, He's not saying the reason I can't boast of it is because I'd be inauthentic. It didn't actually happen. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it did happen, but I'm choosing not to boast in that. I'm choosing not to boast in that. If I wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it. Why? So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In the humility that just characterizes this man, that challenges me and blows me away, he says, I don't want people to think more highly of me than they ought to because I've got incredible stories. I want, he wants to be judged, he's saying, on the basis of what they can see in him and hear from him, not on claims that can't be verified. Not on the basis of claims that cannot be verified. That's what he says. I'm refraining from doing this 
so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. I want you to make it a judgment of me and esteem me based on when the boots are on the ground and I'm in front of you and I'm serving you. That's the man that I want you to know and evaluate. Not the man who can make unverifiable claims. But nevertheless, because these revelations did in fact happen, there, there was a bit of a catch, you might say. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, and that's literally overlifted up. To keep me from being overlifted up, to keep my feet on the ground here. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that did in fact happen. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited, or again, from being overlifted up. Thousands of pages have been spilled about the nature of the thorn, and to this day it remains one of the greatest curiosities in the New Testament. Um, suggestions generally fall on one or two sides, and let me just spoil it for you. We're not going to solve the debate today, sorry, spoiler Alert there, but the suggestions for understanding this generally fall in one of two categories. One is a kind of a physical uh, category, and the other is a relational, interactional understanding of the thorn. Um, so let me give you just because we can't we, we can't go through all these views, but let me just say perhaps the most popular suggestion for the physical interpretation of the thorn in the flesh is this has something to do with Paul's eyes. Uh, this doesn't enjoy a ton of support from the commentators, but there are a few that hold this view, and it's a much more popular. It's a view from the pew. It's held quite a bit. Uh, you could maybe put this together from statements in Galatians where he tells them, like, I testify that you would have torn your own eyes out and given them to me. Well, why did he choose that one? Oh, maybe because his eyes are messed up, and if they could, they would have taken, they would serve him by, you know, doing an eye transplant or something. At the end of the letter, he says, see what letter, large letters I use as I write with, to you with my own hand. He's signing it by himself, so perhaps the idea is there that he's got bad eyesight, and so he's got to use big letters to kind of even see what he's writing. That's the idea. Um, th there's some challenges with that. The first is it's not entirely clear that either one of those passages uh, really imply that Paul has problems with his eyesight. It's it's possible that they're compatible with that, but it's not it's not altogether immediately obvious that that's actually what those things uh, imply. It could imply, for example, that Paul uses a hyperbole based on vision in, in the, the, the middle section of Galatians. And then at the end, Paul isn't a, a, a scribe in the same way. He doesn't have the tiny little letters, the, the mom handwriting, you know. He kind of is more like this situation, and it's all big. It's, it's not clear that he's, he's making a point about his eyes. But perhaps, perhaps, it's possible, but not not entirely clear. It's also difficult to understand how eyesight could be a messenger of Satan. A bad eyesight could be a messenger of Satan, where that word always refers to some kind of agent who does some kind of communication. There's always some kind of interaction or relationship with a messenger. Uh, there's something being taught. There's news being brought. And that's how the word is used. It's difficult to understand how that would be a messenger as opposed to an affliction from Satan, like you have in the case of Job. And then finally, it isn't immediately obvious how bad eyesight would make somebody humble. I'm not aware of people who are saying that you have, you know, if you struggle to, to you know, see well, that you somehow adopt a posture of humility. It's not, it's not entirely clear. Um, there are other suggestions that we simply don't have time to cover. On the other side of the, the, the debate is the relational interpretations, and all of them conclude even if they do so in a variety of ways, that the thorn in the flesh, as opposed to like a thorn in the soul or a thorn in the spirit, was human, that it was fleshly opposition to Paul's teaching and the man himself. That was the thorn. Um, is it simply referring to false teachers that Paul seems to constantly be dealing with throughout his entire ministry? that are always contradicting what he's saying. He's always vying for authenticity with them and for public and for validation, a vindication, perhaps a better word there. Uh, or does it refer to something like you had a spirit that tormented Saul in, this, in the context here? It wouldn't be a, a, 
a spirit tormenting Paul, because uh, again, that would be challenging to see how that would make somebody humble. I would just say, hey, do you, do you, do you verbally spar with demons? No. Okay. Vote for me. Okay. The, 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 that doesn't seem, but, but it, the idea here is there a spirit that brings a spirit of falsehood and deceit wherever Paul goes. So right when he stands up and says something like, I've been to heaven and here's the word of the Lord. Someone says, I have too. And here's the word of the Lord. It's like, wow. He never gets the acclaim that he's due. He never gets the vindication that he's due. He never gets, yes, you're the man, you are right. He never gets that lifted up, that public vindication, that public praise, because he's always being called into question by this, by this thorn. I, the answer is, nobody knows. Thankfully, it actually isn't incredibly relevant to understanding the main point of the passage. Um, but if but if but if I had to step up and, and, and make a call here, I do prefer the second uh, option. I have to say, I think it does more uh, more justice to the idea of a messenger being communicative. Um, I think it explains the just ubiquitous nature of all the opposition Paul gets and the people trying to discredit him throughout his ministry. And I think it paints a better picture of how someone could actually. Uh, how that could help someone being conceited. You are never recognized. You are never validated for what you're saying. Despite being superior, you are always reckoned to just be one of them. Uh, it's a, an, a, imagine a professor of economics disagreeing with someone who, uh, an intro student in economics, and people are like, wow, it's just so hard to know who to believe. That professor probably just feels so frustrated. Like, you're kidding me. My word against this, but like, Imagine never getting that valid. No one ever saying, no, you're definitely superior in knowledge. No, he is, but he never gets that valid. It seems to me that that better explains the humility piece. But here's whatever we speculate, we know these three things for sure. Number one, it was given to him to keep him humble. Number two, it was given by God. And yet, number three, it was given through or facilitated by Satan. We see something like that going on with Job. But Satan enters into the causal matrix here. God ultimately gave the thorn, but somehow Satan plays a role in administering it. And so after a revelation he can't tell us about, a thorn that harasses him and keeps him lowly, he caps it with a healing effort with no healing. This is going really well in terms of being impressive. Okay? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, that is the thorn. But, and the impl implication here is, the answer was no. That gets clarified in verse 9. The answer was no to the healing effort. The prayer request that was denied. But it wasn't just a no. It was a no teased out in verse 9, which is the climax, make no mistake about it, of the full speech. It's the climax. And some people say it's the climax of the entire book of 2 Corinthians. Perhaps. It certainly is the climax of the full speech. I pleaded with the Lord that it would leave. But he said to me, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You don't need this, form, this thorn removed from your life. I understand that you would like it to be removed. I understand how... Mind-numbingly harassing it must be. Whatever we declare, whatever we say that the thorn is. But my power is completed, or it is perfected, it is completed, it is brought to its end in weakness. And so my grace, not the removal of this thing over here, is all you need to see my power completed in your life. And so Paul says, I will gladly, in, in light of that, I will gladly continue to boast in my weaknesses and have Christ's power rest on my life. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, for the sake of Christ, verse 10, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Notice his contentment is, isn't because I just got over it. It actually wasn't as bad. Hey, you know what? When I stopped back, when I, when I reflected on it, they actually, the thorn in the flesh didn't harass me after all. That's not what he says. 
He says, for the sake of Christ, very specifically, for the sake of Christ, whose grace is sufficient and whose power is completed in weakness, for that sake, I can, be, I can do this. I can rest with this. I can boast about these things and be content. For when I am weak, the paradoxical conclusion, I am strong. Because Christ's power meets me there. Paul's superiority to the imposters at Corinth is displayed primarily in his weakness, which both demonstrates and completes God's power. What do we take from this? I only have one application. It has a couple of layers, you might suspect. But one application that I would like to discuss briefly. Reclaiming biblical weakness. Why do we need to reclaim biblical weakness? Because weakness is a shameful cultural category. That's why. Suppose we said we're going to separate the, the, weak, the strong Christians from the weak Christians in this gym. Put the weak folks over here and the strong folks over here. You think anyone would feel any shame? The answer is yes. It's shame language in our culture because it's not just evaluative, like I'm you know, weak compared to when I'm normal compared to when I'm strong. It's also comparative. I'm weak compared to someone else who's not. That's also the language of shame. It's language of less than or worse than. But we need to avoid inappropriately importing some of that cultural baggage into a gospel-centered, Christ-empowered understanding of weakness on one hand, on the one hand, but also avoid the common Christian error of making every possible inability or infirmity something that somehow displays Christ's power. Those are the two things we have to avoid. Inappropriately importing cultural baggage into a biblical understanding of weakness and avoiding the Christian tendency to make everything, including a head cold, part of your weakness that God is power is manifested in. What do I what am I talking about? Biblical weakness, read this with me. Biblical weakness is not wimpiness, whininess, incompetence, run-of-the-mill sickness, or suffering brought on by foolishness and sin. In the context, there's a ton of weakness in this passage. But if you go through here, does Paul seem like a kind of guy who's, uh, who, who is saying that when he is talking about his weaknesses, that he's talking about his wimpiness? Or he's talking about the fact that he just doesn't have a spine, he's, he's a coward? Is he talking about, do you get, see that he's whining? Do you, is he celebrating his incompetence? I don't know anything, I can't do anything, I don't have enough to bring to the table... Is he talking about the head cold that he had on Thursday? Is he talking about certainly, is he talking about his suffering brought on by his own sin? And when you look back in this particular context, the answer is no. None of that's there. None of that's there. Perhaps the most common one that I see is, is recognizing a deficit or incompetence in a certain area. And instead of maybe doing anything about it, Actually, just kind of celebrating the fact, almost, that someone's deficient. That I'm deficient. Well, I don't even do anything. It just becomes a celebration for the sake of celebration. But just think about how silly that is. Like, I, I want the power of Christ on me, so I better not develop any strengths. The way to get the power of Christ is just go find more suffering, find more weakness, find more inability, because that's where Christ crowns His power. Um, that would rob God. If I actually, if I were strong, I would rob God of the opportunity to show power. Now, I wouldn't want to do that. So, so I'm just going to kind of celebrate weakness for what it is. Even worse, I think, is when it gets applied to excuse sin in a Romans 5.20 kind of a way. When my sin abounds... You know, His sufficient grace abounds all the more. Hey, if I want to see God's overpowering grace and gracious overpowering, I don't need to concern myself with my sin and weakness, just my Savior. Well, that sounds really slick, but it's just not there. In fact, if you go back in Romans 5, should we sin? So that is it true that grace abounds in sin? Yes. Should I take that and go, hmm, that means I should probably 
sin more to maximize grace? And Paul said, nope. Actually, he says, by no means the strongest negation possible in the Greek. He's like, you're, you're kind of philosophizing, got ahead of you there. That's not how it works. Is it true that power is completed in weakness? Yes. Do you see Paul pursuing these things as ends? Did, you, did it look like, does Paul give the impression to you that he signed up to go get the, the 39 lashes or to get shipwrecked? No, exactly. That's exactly right. He did not. What is it then? What are we talking about? Here is weakness in the context of 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. What is the kind of weakness that we're talking about? Affliction and relative impotence, meaning lack of power to do something. Affliction and relative impotence experienced in the service and pursuit of that to which Christ has called us. Affliction and relative impotence experienced in the service and pursuit of that to which Christ has called us. When Paul says he's going to boast in things that show his weakness, he certainly isn't showcasing or pointing to his sin, which, by the way, is definitely not the thorn in the flesh. That's one interpretation that every that is certainly wrong. Justify my sin by saying, oh, even Paul had a thorn in his flesh. Folks, that's just bad, okay? The thorn is not sin. The weakness is not my sin, that uh, I'm going to boast in my sin. That's not it. He certainly isn't showcasing his sin. He's not pointing out his ignorance. He's not saying that I'm incompetent to what God has called me to do. He's pointing out, listen to what he's pointing out, his finite, relatively impotent creatureliness that is the, all, the object of all kinds of suffering and neediness as he walks the path Christ has put before him. That's what he's pointing out. The good works he mentions in Ephesians that Christ prepared in advance that he should walk in. So the question for us is this. So what are the intentional pursuits and goals that God has called you to walk in and pursue for the sake of his name? Probably not going to be like Paul, but what is it? I don't mean just, a, oh, I'm just a generic Christian. He's called me to glorify him. Okay, understood. Yes. What are the intentional pursuits that he's called you to? Is it parenting? Maybe in this season of life, my, 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 what I'm called to right now is to be a mom or a dad husband or wife, what are the main things that you feel God has called you to past just generic Christian living? Maybe it's the workplace. I'm going to be a witness in my workplace. Maybe it's uh, being a self-sacrificial friend to someone who struggles to express thanks and sometimes expresses demands and it's mind-numbingly frustrating. What is it? What is it that God has called you to in a particular season of life, and maybe it's more than just a season. And many of our sufferings and our, and our challenges and our impotence to do much about them is not going to look like Paul's, but it doesn't mean that we will not suffer and struggle with the same finiteness and relative impotence to control the world around us and to control what perhaps is going on in our bodies or to our bodies. And there's going to be a neediness in a variety of ways as we try to honor Christ with, it, with what has been put before us. And there... Right there is where he says, my power is made complete in your life. For you personally, right there. I'm the one who gets it done and covers gap. I'm the one who gets it done. That's where tremendous power is specifically manifested in completing your walk of faith. My power is displayed not in your self-sufficiency for the tasks uh, I've called you to, but in your insufficiency and your impotence and your lack of sovereignty and power it's my strength that makes up what is lacking right at those points and boldly clarifies that I am a powerful, glorious, sovereign God and you are not. That's how it works. I am a powerful, sovereign God. You are a finite creature. You have been called to works that you are insufficient for. But my power is demonstrated in the gap. My power is demonstrated in the gap because I am for you. Because I am for you. That's what he says. Affliction and relative impotence experience. I say relative impotence just because there are some things you certainly can control. But unfortunately, as we all know, there's a ton in life we just have absolutely no control over. Affliction and relative impotence experience in the service and pursuit of that to which Christ has called us. And I don't want to be taken as being ugly or overly negative in certain understandings 
Um, certainly a sickness could be understood as a weakness, but, it, but, but, just, but, but, I, but, but I don't mean just generically getting sick. Our afflictions and, and, and our relative impotence have to be contextualized towards what Christ is calling us to, and not just some general flimsy sense of weakness. I'm blowing my nose too much. Someone got sick. There's a challenge at work. There needs to be intentionality and contextualization so that the weaknesses are understood in the pursuit of what God has put before me, in the pursuit of what God has put before you. So in order to really apply this to our lives, we have to grasp one final point here. Harnessing strength for weakness, it doesn't just happen. There is a danger, I think, and I've already mentioned it, of celebrating inability, incompetence, ignorance, sickness, certain kinds of suffering, just kind of to celebrate them. Well, it's, it's throw my hands up in the air because presumably if I want to get God's power, I should just try to be a weak, afflicted, battered person because power follows weakness. Now that's a broken strategy, brothers and sisters. It's a broken strategy. It's not the strategy we see Paul pursuing here. He's not pursuing these things to enter into a power production matrix. Okay, That's like the philosophy major who went to one class, thinks he's smarter than everyone, and tried to come up with a system. That's not how it works. There's more to the story, and it's very, very obvious in the passage. And what I want to leave you with is two things, and unfortunately I didn't put them up on the slides, so you're going to have to write them down. Okay? If you didn't write them down, talk to Amy Cannell. She takes good notes. Right? The kind of weaknesses that make strong. Number one present themselves as obstacles and hardships we feel impotent to address in our pursuit of faithfulness to Christ's specific call in our lives. That's the first part. Biblical weakness and the kind of weakness in which Christ's power is manifest present themselves as obstacles and hardships we feel impotent to address in our pursuit of faithfulness to Christ's specific call on our lives. The second element of the kind of weakness that makes strong and the kind of weakness in which Christ's power is made complete is that it results in trusting and re- results, it requires and, and results in, in one sense, uh, but maybe better to say it requires trusting reliance on Christ's power to work through our finiteness and imperfections to accomplish His purposes. It results in trust, it requires, excuse me, trusting reliance on Christ's power to work through our finiteness and imperfections to accomplish His purposes. Those two things, presents themselves as obstacles we're impotent to address, requires trusting reliance on Christ's power. We have a responsibility to pursue, to run the race, to keep the faith. Because brothers and sisters, without some of these elements, weakness can just be weakness. It can just be weakness. I'll leave it to you to ask those questions, to discuss these things in your homes, perhaps in your community groups. And may God give us grace and the humility to where we see weakness boast in those things because that's where God shows up and his power is completed in our lives, right in the gaps, right in the gaps of the things we need to do but are insufficient to do to live the life God has called us to. Let's pray. God, we are thankful to have a sufficient Savior we are glad that we do not have to be everything, that we do not have to have control over our circumstances, that we don't have to try to manufacture our life, put it together. Pray, Lord, that we would press into this truth that your power is completed and made perfect in weakness when we are so quick to want to boast about all of the impressive things that we could bring to bear to set ourselves apart, even in the quiet of our own thoughts as we bolster our own self-esteem. Lord, will we be a people who learn to boast in weakness because Christ has conquered? I ask in Jesus' name.